episode of Law Radio. It's Thursday the 7th of July 2016. I'm speaking to you from the windy and cool city of Wellington in New Zealand where Melissa Caston and I are attending the Australasian Law Teachers Association conference. Today's episode is a recording of a session by Esther Van Wagner who's a lecturer at Victoria University of Wellington. Esther's talk is about teaching through place-based pedagogies. She'll explain to us the foundation of place-based pedagogies in teaching subjects or law subjects concerning land, including natural resources law. Then she'll explain to us some of the techniques she's used in designing and in teaching these subjects to her students. She's just about to embark on a project to analyse the effectiveness of these techniques. Let's listen now to Esther Van Wagner. This particular inquiry is about the potential to use digital technologies to enhance place-based learning in the legal education sector. So essentially I've been sort of experimenting with that and now I have a little bit of funding to really assess how that experiment has been working for students and Um, compare it to what people have been doing elsewhere and um, I really want to root that in the discourse about place-based learning and law which is a small but growing um, uh, area of scholarship and inquiry. So uh, I am here at Victoria but um, as you can probably hear I am also Canadian. I'm a recent arrival to New Zealand so my ideas about place-based learning are informed both from my experience here but also from my experience in Canada Um, And I teach land law related subjects, so I teach property law, but I also teach resource management law and and natural resource law. So planning, environmental and natural resource type subjects as well as the core property subjects. So my experiments and my interest in this are really dedicated to those kinds of subjects, but could have implications for other ones um, that I haven't quite thought of yet. So um, I think these kinds of courses present particular opportunities to engage students with the complexity of the social, environmental, and political contexts that cases occur in, legal issues occur in, but also with the materiality of the particular places at stake. So the physical world, the material world at stake when legal decisions are being made, and that includes the human portions of that, but also the more than human world that is part of that are implicated in those decisions and affected by those decisions. So I have four starting points. The first one is my own experience. I, Before I went to law school, I worked my way through university as an experiential outdoor educator. I guided people through the wilderness of Canada during the summers, um, and that has always informed my approach to education, but also my um, approach to law. The second one is a mentor and colleague of mine in Australia, Nicole Graham, gave me a draft of a paper that's now um, the published version in 2013 to look at. And it 
suggested that legal education, and particularly the teaching of property law and property law concepts in other courses, can be understood to be contributing to environmental crisis and particularly to climate change. She argued that despite the growth of environmental law type subjects, that legal education itself can be a barrier to adaptation in the context of climate change. And I'll summarize her very wonderful article that I suggest you read, but into four points. Maintaining the abstract, de-physicalized um, categories of rights and relations between people and places limits the abilities of lawyers to understand and respond to environmental problems, to understand what is at the core of the case that people are bringing to them, particularly the material and physical aspects of those legal problems. Secondly, that legal education reinforces the separation and hierarchical ordering of primary land use rights, being property rights, and subordinate public interest type obligations. Thirdly, promoting the growth economy um, model of political and economic relations, and then maintaining an anthropocentric paradigm. Again, limiting the way of thinking that future lawyers will have to respond in potentially interdisciplinary or more holistic ways in the face of environmental crisis. Another, um, another thing that got me really thinking about this was the work of these geographers here. And they do really interesting work in looking at the role of lawyers, a really under-examined um, place about the role of lawyers in land disputes. So they explore the relationships between lawyers, clients, and the cultural construction of space or landscape. So what is that work of lawyers in placemaking that occurs when a legal dispute is happening? They raise questions about the process of translation. So a community is expressing a concern about something, and lawyers do this kind of work that transforms that into legal arguments, and they point to the fact that something important or many things that are important or significant might be lost in that process. It may be the strategically correct thing to do, but it has consequences, and lawyers should be reflecting on what those consequences are and what it is that could be lost or changed or gained in that process. So, they ask, do lawyers and their clients remain bound by traditional legal regimes, or is there a kind of transformative process through which they create something new and positive, potentially, um, and change, as we've just heard about before, potentially change the frameworks, but to ask that kind of critical question about that work. The final and most recent influence on, on my inquiry is a talk that Canadian Indigenous legal scholar John Burroughs gave a little while ago here at our law school about learning from the land and some really important examples in the Canadian context of using outside of the classroom learning, land-based learning to teach a whole range of legal ideas and concepts. He's particularly focused on indigenous law and indigenous legal concepts, but also gave some great examples of property law, constitutional law, all being taught outside of the classroom, walking around a city, walking on old railway lands, under, talking under a bridge, these sorts of things. So that was his work, and I believe that's ending up in a published paper, so look out for that. Um, it really summarizes some great examples from the Canadian context. So 
In my view, these contributions are coming together in a really useful way to demonstrate that there's material consequences of legal education. So when we teach future legal actors, it will shape the, their ability to adequately respond to and address the tangible physical dimensions of environmental crisis, not just the legal questions, but the outcome, the lawscape, as Nicole Graham calls it, um, of law. So these led me to examine the leadership role that this requires legal educators to take um, in the kind of knowledge production that we're doing that to prepare future lawyers to negotiate the discontinuity between legal regimes and the people-place relations that they experience in their everyday lives and that inform their concerns and why they're bringing forward legal cases. And I would say this, you know, it's particularly true for various reasons in various jurisdictions, but as I've come to learn in New Zealand, it is certainly true in terms of the um, housing crisis, the rapid urbanization, um, the need for land for affordable housing, but also the transformation of the landscape through the growth of dairy conversions and, as we already heard about, the impact of dairying on the land. So in this context, I think the lawyers that we're teaching are tasked with transforming claims about specific material places based on really complex relations between the human communities and the more than human communities in them into cognizable legal claims shaped as abstract legal rights. This is the core of the work that they're doing. Um, and sometimes we forget to teach them how to pay attention to the affective and the physical dimensions of those, um, of those decisions and that work. And I think the place-based learning um, scholarship and practice is where we might look to do a better job of that and to look to how we prepare them to be reflexive about that work of changing the material into abstraction of rights and then potentially backwards again. So as Graham and other commentators, such as, such as US commentator Joseph Sachs or legal scholar Joseph Sachs have noted, we need to do more than just add subjects to the curriculum. So it hasn't worked to just add more environmental law content. We actually need to change the way we teach some of the core concepts. And of course, because I teach property, I think it's all about changing property, but I'm sure that you all might think uh, there are other core aspects. Um, certainly aspects of contracts, tort law, administrative law would be equally important here. But that these core concepts, even when they're taught in environmental law and other law courses, don't always really get unpacked enough, and alternatives, importantly, aren't really presented enough in the way that we teach law subjects. And these become a kind of basis, a foundation for practice that can go um, towards this kind of dephysicalized and the perpetuation of a dephysicalized abstract notion of environmental rights. So what the work of scholars like those I've pointed to, lead us to, is that the ability of lawyers to do this work reflexively, to understand the and cope with the experiential aspects of what their clients are bringing forward when they're experiencing transformation of a place, when they're experiencing the loss of a place, 
and the fundamental relationships, be they social or ecological, in a particular place. It, sorry, I've just lost my place here. It points us to the need um, to move towards a more relational, contingent, interdisciplinary type of understanding of legal work and legal practice. And this includes understanding that even though the, um, the tools that we are given don't always, um, as lawyers, can't always see the full relationality of the place that we're in, that the people who are experiencing these can provide us with additional tools. So I loved the example of the koala bear um, <laughs> photos and names because here the lawyers are given something by the community to fill a space that is actually very difficult for law to fill. Well, the expert evidence doesn't show any animals, so there's no animals, right? So that making space for those experiential aspects of experiences of place, of relationships with place, becomes very important. But we don't have a lot of tools to teach um, future lawyers how to assess and deal with those things, except when they get a great opportunity in a clinical space. But in the classroom, that's quite challenging. So... So what is this sort of place-based um, pedagogy, this place-based teaching that I'm talking about that I think will help us figure this out? There's been long-standing debates about property theory and law and legal pedagogy. I'm not going to go into those today, although I am certainly acknowledging that I'm indebted to them. Um, but my... I don't think they go far enough because they often still really focus on the social critique of property. And there isn't, hasn't been as much work done on expanding the critical perspective of property to the more than human world and really moving beyond this de-physicalized concept of property and property relations that informs a lot of environmental and natural resource transactions. So place-conscious pedagogy, pedagogy or place-based pedagogy, for example, that put forward by Grunwald, offers a promising way to open up this kind of relational approach to teaching in law. Grunwald notes that it can, quote, extend our notions of pedagogy and accountability outwards towards places. And in the context of legal practice, this is me now, prepares lawyers to respect and uphold the relational dimensions of places at stake in environmental disputes. Grunwald's critical pedagogy of place aims to identify, recover, and create material places that teach us how to live well in our total environments and identify and change ways of thinking that injure and exploit other people and places. And so he poses this as a re-inhabitation and decolonization project. So in a sense, it's opening up legal pedagogy to a wider set of relations and ways of knowing and interdisciplinarity that reflects the interconnectivity of earth systems and ecological relations. But it also, I think, offers educators a way to help students under, uh, explore that under-examined role of the lawyer as a transformer in disputes about land, and so what does this mean in practice? Well, it means on a very basic level, as we've already heard, listening to the voices of those impacted by decisions alongside reading 
the judicial decisions and legal materials in order to ask what the work of translation and transformation that was done in a particular case means. What might the benefits and the harms been of how we've translated connection and relationship into abstract rights. This points towards the need to have a relational concept of place, a kind of negotiated, always changing moment of relation between the human and the non-human. Um, but notably, it is not about privileging any particular kind of localism. It is really about opening up to a more relational, uh, interconnected kind of um, language and ways of knowing. So it relies not simply on experiences of place and on bringing the material in, but also on critical thinking and inquiry, and so must work hand in hand with other types of critical engagement. For example, feminist critical race theory and indigenous legal theory, I think, are ones that are particularly promising. So it's not just about getting students out there or bringing the out into the classroom, but doing so in a critical way. So that was all very theoretical, but what have I actually um, started to try and do in order to realize this? Well, there's some really obvious ways to do this. The direct experience of place becomes very important. Um, so I have in my resource management and natural resource classes provided at least one opportunity to get out and walk and experience a place. So in my natural resource law class, most recently, we went to visit the West Wind Wind Farm. Students heard directly from Meridian, um, the proponent there. They had read submissions from the community group that had opposed it and uh, gained some quite significant um, concessions. And they also just walked around. They wandered around listening to how loud the turbine was, did it was it really visible from this point or that point, making their own assessment of what the transformation of the land might be and weighing the kind of balancing that one does with renewable energy about the impact on the place and then the much broader global benefits that come from it. In my resource management class, we did a waterfront walk right out here with an environment court judge who gave us the history of the many recent buildings and developments um, through their cases. So we studied the cases one day um, with him in the classroom, and then we did a walk where we actually saw those buildings and carried the plans with us and looked at them and put a, um, a material face on that. Of course, speakers are important for this, and by that I'm not just talking about practicing lawyers, but as we've heard, the clients, the people who actually experience these things, but also interdisciplinary speakers, scientists and planners, particularly in these courses, become very important voices to hear from. But, um, I'm going to skip the video and audio thing, obviously that is very important, um, particularly images, maps, and music. Um, there's a example of a video that I showed about fresh water that I'm happy to share the slides so you can get that link. But I want to get to what I actually did um, in terms of the um, what I'll be examining in this research project. So it may seem counterintuitive to say, well, let's have place-based learning and take them outside and then to rely on digital technologies. <laughs> What? We're, we want more screen time? I, I spend my whole life trying to stop my four-year-old from being on a screen. <laughs> now, now I'm requiring my students to get on them. But I think 
The digital technologies and blogging in particular hold both some practical and some very real pedagogical promise. So in particular, the blogging as a class participation, but also as an individual assessment model um, has been really interesting and successful to use because there's a funding for developing these kinds of tools. So the university is interested in it and one can actually get this going. But also it provided a community space that was different than the in-class participation, which got different people involved. It provided a space to post current events, news articles, legislative and policy updates, as well as academic articles, observations, reflections on the field trip, and other kinds of relevant materials. But students were also required to participate in the blog through their assessment. So they did a case study of a particular place or issue and had to post their blog, their assessment on there for everyone to see and share. So they were um, working together. I called it a kind of collective project by individual research. And it allowed us to expose the breadth of an area of law, like natural resource law or resource management, which covers an enormous amount of topics through their individual projects, but also allowed the individual students to engage very deeply. And they were specifically required to choose an issue that had a place. They had to pick a place to attach their issue to, not an abstract issue. And the results were fantastic. The quality of the work was excellent. The feedback from the students was really good. Um, and I'm happy to talk more about that in the, um, in the questions because I've run out of time. But what I plan to do now is I've run this experiment twice. I'm going to run the blogging assessment experiment in my next resource management class. But I'm starting a research project where I'll actually do some qualitative surveying of the students to see what they thought and how it impacted them and try to assess the place-based aspects of that learning um, through, through that research and then come up with some template models that other legal educators could use. If you're interested in more of our podcasting work, head to our blog at www.lawradio.net and follow the links. And remember, you can follow Kate Galloway and myself, Melissa Caston, on Law Radio, on iTunes and SoundCloud. See you next time.